Hello, welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo, and I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and by Dave Morgan, the CEO of Simul Media. Dave, thank you for being here. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Ari and Eric, for having me. Great seeing you, Dave. Yes, yeah, great seeing you. It's great getting your updates about your various uh, exercise regimens, and even in the hot weather. So, does it ever get too hot to do one of your one of your runs? No, weather is not allowed to stop me. It's not permitted. Your run posts are always so positive. Well, it's like my way to think. It's like my way to meditate in the morning. And so like, you got to get out there and I always feel better when I'm done, even if it hurts. This explains why I can't think anymore. It's all clogged up there. Well, we're really happy to have you on because, um, you know, we had uh, Alan Walk on a couple weeks ago talking about TV and it's a really interesting subject to so the whole world of video and TV. And I can't think of anyone with more expertise than you in this. So I think it'd be interesting, uh, since you've been CEO of Simul Media for quite some time, to kind of give us the story of the company, like the ups and downs, where it is now. Yeah, so it's 14 and a half years, which is a long time in one business. It's helpful to sort of talk about why it started. So I got into this whole business 30 years ago, more than 30, on this belief that the information superhighway was going to plug into the back of the TV set and you'd order a pizza from the couch. That was the story. And I even went, I even saw the Bell Atlantic Home of the Future in someplace in Northern Virginia in probably 92 or 93 where they had that. Although it was the high definition TV was the coolest thing there. And the air mouse, those two things like that. <laughs> those are the striking things. So after doing real media and then doing Dakota, and spending time at Time Warner, I thought, well, like, okay, TV's ready now. Because even in the 90s, I did it, we were doing addressable ads in Europe in real media with probably about 4 million households across a couple of countries. So, you know, there was an expectation that we would see a transition to IPTV, you know, truly an internet protocol TV, which, you know, we just call streaming today. And so, but there was a belief that it would hybridize across linear and streaming and that one would go away and the other would come up and you'd have the one who could sort of blend across both would win. Look, can I interrupt you there for one second? Because I think yeah. it's a really interesting point, which is I think if you went into the 90s and asked about the future of TV, they were thinking it would be controlled by the same people like the cable companies and the networks. It would just be sort of interactive and some of it would be digital and some of it would be old fashioned linear. And that's not at all how it played out. Yeah, correct. I think, I mean, the telcos were thinking they were going to control it. So they were going to be a new player. We didn't see pure web-based platforms necessarily as being able to play. But there was a real going to be a real fight between the cable companies, the distributors, and the content companies. So I would say that, you know, the telcos never really made it. And the distributors, like, you know, had different positions. But very good point. And we, we, yeah, it was like that whole TCPIP versus ATM debate. Exactly. Uh, that people thought the protocols were, weren't going to support video uh, and you needed to use the like the coax cable with the hardcore cable protocols. Exactly. If you go back to the at-home business, that was what it was all about. You were going to have to build like a whole different set of protocols to do it and those companies would have advantages. And we just didn't understand it was ultimately a matter of time and bandwidth. That's just, you know, that's one of the reasons that like obviously the early web was dominated by text and still photo publishers. So newspapers and magazines, and then eventually search, because then that just because pure text and it just perfectly optimized on it. Okay. So I disrupted your story. Okay. Get, get back on track. So after leaving Time Warner, AOL was like, okay, this is now TV will be coming. 
And I actually have this little grid. I should have brought it. I could show it to you, but I can describe it since this is a podcast. In 2008, I had this piece of paper and I sort of showed that, you know, today all TV is linear and is a triangle. And that by 10 years in 2018, it would all be on demand. It would all be IP on demand. And I did it like in the coffee shop with Fred Wilson. Right. He was like taking a picture. I'm sure if I go back and look at abc.com, he's got his picture of it. Fred and, Wilson, the famous venture capitalist from Union Square Ventures. Yeah. Right. And I, I got it on my desk. And so today is 2023. Today, of all content viewed on TV, 60% is still viewed in linear cable broadcast satellite. Of all ads viewed on TV, 85% is still cable satellite broadcast. So it still took this company. I've been at it for a while, but it's still taking longer than we thought. And though it is playing out differently, I think that we are learning that what I didn't anticipate, I should have as a digital guy, was that the digital folks would jump in with both feet into the streaming portion of it and actually accelerate budgets and that those budgets would be separate from the linear budgets that would continue to be controlled by TV people and they would just sort of shrink. But I never expected, ever expected, they would both stay sideload like this, like right. that this long. Wait, so can you just run through those stats again? You said 60% of viewership is linear and 80% of ads? Yes, yeah, 60% of all content time, Americans on TV, what we call premium content, probably splits YouTube into some, you know, premium-ish and non-premium-ish. 60% is still from a linear delivery platform, cable, satellite, or broadcast. And then 40% is on streaming. But if you look at advertising time, because so much of streaming is ad-free or ad-light, right. it's only 15% of ad viewing time on TV, which is why every time an advertiser says, well, 40% of people are watching TV streaming, I have to have 40% of my budget. I'm like, great. But that's a lot of money chasing a finite amount of inventory. One of two things happens. You price that up 3x, or you create a lot of fake stuff that carries an IP address, carries a device ID, carries something, and you sell it into the marketplace because you know there's so much demand. And we've not about, has ever had that before. Yeah, we, we've talked about Netflix a bunch over the course of the past few episodes. And when you, the, the way you lay that out, it makes me think that if Netflix really decided to turn the dials up on this ad product, I mean, it will be a beast of a business overnight. A hundred percent, Eric. You're exactly. And they can and they will, I think. I think that I think they're handling the strategy exactly right. I think they're keeping their inventory small. They're building a base of advertisers. They're making sure they have parity in their technical features. They're making sure that they can start figuring out what will be some of their differentiated ad implementations so that they can really drive premium pricing. But probably what they're going to do is, you can imagine, is just keep pushing up the pricing of the ad-free version until the ad supported significantly exceeds it because the average revenue per user already, for them, they've announced now, I think not this quarter, the quarter before, is already exceeding what they get in the, in the full um, premium subscription product. Okay, we derailed you again. So what? What? Where did? So how does Simon Media happen? Well, I had this idea that like, okay, all you need to do is like build a better mousetrap. You show it to the agencies that do TV. 
and boom, they're going to buy it just like happened in the digital world when we brought in better targeting products. You know, did not realize that actually the TV industry did not want people to optimize across the different channels of TV between broadcast and cable and cable and satellite because those were all separate fiefdoms. They also didn't want you to make fungible advertising audiences between primetime and fringe and morning and daytime or sports and entertainment and reality because those were all separate silos with separate buyers. So is it just agencies that are getting in the way? Because marketers can't think like this. In the sell side, they both organized that way. So there was a person that just, and still, even today, I was just talking to to Dave Morris as he was exiting Paramount. For the first time in the history of the company, more than three people in the company actually can sell a multi-channel product. Because it was just, basically, it was Holly, Joanne Ross, and, and Dave. Everybody below only sold one product or the other. And in fact, most of them only sold sub-products. There was a, a buyer, a complementary buyer on the other side. I sell syndicated daytime. Right. Syndicated daytime buyer. So the idea of doing a truly audience-based buy in a more digital approach just was not possible. And so that helped us in Simul Media try to understand how we would try to like move those budgets into what would be a digitally oriented, more fungible world. And that took a long time. The good thing of having done several startups is you sort of learn how to stay close to the hoop, keep your team small, solve things with software, don't take any big positive signals too positive. I mean, it's hard not to, but like, don't get crazy. And, you know, we've been lucky now for 14 plus years to have grown, you know, throughout that time period to be profitable, no debt, cash flowing, understanding things like managing working capital is the most important thing in a media business, as we will increasingly see, as we certainly saw with Media Math and we'll see with others, because in the programmatic world, as everyone knows, the structure of it has caused that the publishers are getting paid in sometimes only 30 or 60 days, prepaid on campaigns that agencies are not paying for 150, 180, or 200. Right. And when interest rates were zero, capital was free, and Silicon Valley Bank was there to help, and some others, you could finance your revenue, but you know you sell something and you have to finance it right away to deal with that. And the Trade Desk did that brilliantly to take the DSP market at a time when it was more competitive. But that's a fundamental weird bug in the, um, you know, it was originally a feature in the digital platform business that's probably going to become more of a bug to it over time. Is the payment situation as bad in linear as it is in digital? Or no. is it the same? No. TV works in a, um, a velvet rope way that a limited number of companies are able to partner with the television companies directly and be able to transact with them. And if they are accepted and manage it correctly, have the capacity to be able to secure access to spots in the future and be able to transact with them in such that they can align the payment of the ads with the payment to the suppliers as long as they can stay within the certain amount of time. And so it's a much more trusted world because it's a closed world. Right. Closed, trusted, curated world. And that's like fundamental difference. You're probably looking at 
at least 60 days or more of difference in working capital that has to be financed, maybe 90. Wait, 60 days better or worse in linear? Better. Linear. Better. Yeah. But, but only for those companies that are part of the trusted one. For some companies that come in and try to buy it on other terms, some of the DR shops and others may find themselves upside down. And when the digital companies come in and try to buy linear, they have to pay on digital terms typically. Right. So how has the product evolved? So it you're describing sort of a agency-facing TV optimization product to start. Now, it, it, you've expanded since then. So Simon Media does a lot more than that, right? It's both an agency and a brand platform. It handles the entire life cycle from audience analytics, who are my audiences that are available and who's watching TV and how they watch into audience planning, to activation, which will automated negotiation, automated activation, measurement, and optimization. And I'll be careful with the word measurement. It's a internal measurement, but it's also everything is externally measured and audited by whatever the choice is of the supplier. Not everyone will use all parts of it, but the piece that anchors all of it is that we bring in a massive amount of, of direct viewing data, raw, from smart TVs, set-top boxes, other alternative delivery devices. We see about 50 million or so people every second in what they're watching. This is really across the country. At times we had 80 million, but you don't even need 50 at this point. And then that's balanced against a lot of other data sets, which could be Census and Nielsen and Experian. And, and it's everyone can be balanced against each data set. And what helps power it is that because it's audience attention that's being bought. So it's not what's the most advantageous audience avail that's going to go down the waterfall stack really fast. It's buying audience attention in the future. Every day we predict when every person, 313 million people, two and older in the United States, are going to watch every 15 minutes for the next 18 months. Wow. And then every day we see the actual data, and every day we re-predict that 18 months out. So we're really excited about AI, if you've imagined, because we've been building training data sets. We've been running it. It's all been machine learning always and increasingly more AI-ish. That lets us better understand exactly what people are going to watch. And so the big things that have changed are we've really refined that so that we can predict better than anybody. We'll know what person will be available at what place and what time. How do you do deduplication across channels? Now, in, now streaming as well so that you can understand. Because as you'd imagine, those statistics I gave you in the beginning, no one's only streaming or only linear. That's a very small part of the audience. Most people are both. So, you know, TV is in this long transition from pure Nielsen metrics to, you know, rich audience metrics. You know, what, what proportion, uh, first of all, do you agree with that? Second of all, what, what proportion of ad buys are audience influenced currently? On the national TV advertising front, except for the pool that is direct response, virtually every single ad is Nielsen. Every single ad? Every. Now, if you look at how much TV companies will pay for the Nielsen TV currency in the United States for sale, not for custom work, just for the currency sale, that's about $1.7 billion. That's the fees they pay to Nielsen? Yes. Right. And those are on rolling five-year contracts, and only one big one's up each year. 
which means it's a good way to keep a dominant position in the market. If you look at all of the fees, that all of the sell side plays all of the alternative measurement movement for a currency sale, not custom ad campaign analytics or things. It's under 30 million. Wow. 7 billion, under 30 million. Is the same true for local and regional buys? Uh, it, local is, is Nielsen and Comscore, but local's not sold on audiences. I mean, it's really still sold on spot price and whatever someone will pay. So it's a much smaller market. I think the total local currency market is under $100 million, maybe under 75. So, you know, it's compared to 1.7, it's pretty small. Now, many companies, I mean, we've been double posting on an alternative currency as part of a campaign for more than 10 years, but we still also maintain a Nielsen currency. And we will see more people buy on other currencies, but the seller is still having to support a Nielsen currency there. And so I would say that depending on how you count it, 20% of national campaigns are going to have some other significant metric involved, but it's in most cases an additive one. In the case where it's an additive one, the contract that is being signed, the IO, is based on Nielsen metrics. And then they have some other metric that is just going to be reported on and evaluated. Is that the way to think about it? Typically. There are some brands that are moving a little more aggressively to just one. But if you think about it, most brands have such a complicated supply chain and complicated funding of their marketing. So if you're a quick service restaurant, your franchisees have built in their contracts, how much money they contribute to the marketing spend and pool, and they have certain requirements that you spend it under historically Nielsen GRP numbers. So you have to normalize that. The same for Gillette doing its deal with Walmart. So I would say that um, it's going to still be pretty tough for the alternative measurement movement. And, and I've been, I sound like an apologist for Nielsen, but I've been selling alternative measurements against everything for 10 years. So it's not like I don't believe in it. But these companies that have billions of dollars in, in private market cap funding for building an alternative to currency. Recap is coming. Uh, wow. Okay. You heard it here first. Can you give us the lowdown on the JIC? We talked to Alan about it, but I feel like we got a lot of uh, clarity on it. JICs or JIGs exist in many markets around the world, and they exist for one reason, and that in virtually every country outside the United States, the television business is a monopoly. One company or two companies, usually the government has a big influence in one, and it's designed to keep them, the one company, honest. Right. The jig came together to try to create leverage against the primary currency provider, Nielsen, who had not been doing a good job for years in getting a not very good panel that was not so accurate. Now, people forget they didn't own that currency. The C3 and the C7 was owned by the TV companies, not Nielsen. And they wanted to keep selling on sex age demos and rotators, but Nielsen absolutely dropped the ball in not modernizing over the years when it could have and should have and as people wanted to. So, so the JIC at this point is purporting to support alternative currencies, but interestingly is trying to bypass the entity the United States government set up decades ago to ensure that the sellers of media did not perpetrate fraud for their self-dealing in delivering media with currency, which is the MRC, the MRC, the Media Rating Council, who has very specific rules for 
making sure that the, the, the measurements are independent and verified. So you sound like a little bit of a critic of this JIC uh, process. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I support, I mean, the companies are all my friends. They're my partners. I just think it's a little, and it's, it, I understand first that it has a lot to do with leverage. Nielsen would not have moved if they hadn't taken steps like Right, um, gotcha. Wouldn't have all of these other companies moving alternative currencies if they hadn't taken steps. That's really good. I just try to be a bit of a realistic voice out there, which is it's still a lot more about potentiality for what these things do. And it will help drive change. But Nielsen's unfair competitive advantage, which you know we entrepreneurs know what those three words mean, and unfair competitive advantage truly has to be unfair, is that Decades ago, John Dimling, when he ran Nielsen Media, set these contracts, these five-year rolling contracts up to all expire at a different year among the big players, exactly the way the automakers did with the UAW in Detroit to make sure that they could never be shut down at once by the unions. And so those contracts have really exploding payment terms and price increases on year four and year five. So if you don't renew in year three, you're screwed and your pricing could double by year five. And so no one can get to year five. Every company that wants to cancel Nielsen will have to eat the price increases in a year four, year five of a contract. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's fascinating. We could probably talk about that for hours. Um, I'm, I'm on a one-man crusade to tell people that it's not pronounced jick, it's pronounced gick. Uh, but um, that's, <laughs> that's just my little thing. Yeah, so, so today... If you, so there's two interesting things about you. Number one, Sabomini is backed by USV as a VC and only been doing this now for five and a half years. Um, you know, USV is like arguably one of, if not the greatest uh, early stage fund of all time. Something like 60% annual gains, like some from some new sort of like interesting leak reporting. So, so it's incredible. What's it like working with Fred Wilson, who's the founder of USV? Yeah, well, let's be clear. It's founders, it's Brad and Fred. One of the founders, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, they're amazing. Now, I mean, I I was the alpha. The Union Square Ventures right. was created out of Dakota, where they both were investing, and they decided to do a fund together, and then they needed a poster child, and that was me, and I helped them go raise money. Um, and the University of Texas, which we got to put in a big chunk, ended up having the greatest return of any investment in a bit. That's the report that was leaked, actually. It was like uh, a 10x um, and, and still, still going. Yeah, so it, on, on the investment, yeah. like incredible, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, they're, they're special, but there's, the biggest thing about them is that um, they're truly early stage. They really complement each other well. Fred is obviously more out front and, and he's like, you know, he's, he's ideating all the time and Brad's a little more strategic and more disciplined. And, and the partners they brought in, since then have been are great uh, as well. But um, they're, they're all in. I mean, I probably one of the last, I will be the last probably to ever have both of them on my board at once, but they're all in. And the big thing that makes has differentiated them as fund, and I want to say a fund, but throughout the series of the funds they've raised is for baseball fans, it's their on-base percentage. So if you look at the, oh, the beginning fund, it wasn't like you just had one monster, like one Facebook or one Oracle or one. No, they had the first money in Twitter, the first money in Tumblr, the first money in Zynga, the first money in Indeed, the first money in FeedBurner, the first money. I mean, 
Dick Costello and I used to laugh. He was feed burner. I was Dakota. We had returned the fund like one and a half times and no one even noticed. People were super happy when we sold. But then three years later, no one noticed because it returned so much more. But they're expert at that. And they're the real venture capitalists. Like they understand entrepreneurs, they understand how to work with them. And indeed, I think that, you know, in the pre-money of all those companies I mentioned, not one of them had a pre-money over, I think Zynga was the highest at 13 million. Even when they did Coinbase in 2014, they had been looking at crypto as a thesis for four years. Fred's post was four years before. And they put 5 million in for 20%. And that went public at, I don't know, 4 billion? So they're thesis driven. They're not momentum driven. They don't play the West Coast thing of like, let's just throw more and more money and squeeze out competition. And they're, they're good people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Question two, you mentioned Dakota. So, you know, as a, as a former founder of an ad network, I always look, look to you as being like a, you know, like an example of success like twice, right? So we obviously real media was number one and then Dakota number two. Ad networks have come back in the, in the form of like retail media um, and retail media networks. Have, have you like paid attention to, to that? And do, do you find that a you know, sort of interesting trend and segment? Oh, very much. I mean, first, it never went away. Like they just, people are afraid to call themselves an ad network. We need fundamentally an ad network. We're just a transparent ad network that takes a platform fee and assembling, you know, assembling the solution against a curated list of publishers. So I like what's going on in retail media networks a lot. I think that it's very powerful. I think that it's interesting the companies that are driving them that have the owned and operated inventory and then what they can do in the third party. The big issue is obviously going to be attribution because if everyone counts up everybody's attribution, the gross domestic product of the United States goes up by 10x. So, uh, <laughs> And what's going to happen here, which we're already seeing, is that a bunch of retailers' data is for some of the same brands actually driving sales at a different retailer. And so it's one thing for Amazon to do it where it controls things so much. Walmart's in a pretty good place, but the more they probably start learning that opening their data up is actually selling their customers to competitors who happen to have you know, leverage things in a network will have some impacts in this. I do like a lot, and I know you just had him on, Mark Grether. I love what Uber's doing because they have a, a unique capacity. They have a lot of owned inventory on their own mobile platform. They have, and on their app, they have a lot of inventory they're building in the screens inside the vehicles, and then they know where you're moving. And they don't just have some location data. They really know where you're going on a purpose-driven kind of way. And also, Dara's like, done that advertising thing before. People don't remember that like Expedia was a dominant ad player in the early days. Yeah. I, I wanted to point out that uh, the Mark uh, interview was one of our most watched and listened on Architecture TV. He gives a really in-depth discussion of everything Uber's up to. It's very worth listening to. Yeah. They're so transparent. I mean, that's the other thing that's, that's refreshing. Mark's just opened up and he's been clearly given I mean, he's a great guy, but he's been given a mandate to like go make this happen and change the market. So let, let's transition. This is a great segue. Let's just tra transition to our news of the week because Uber's in our news of the week. So Uber announced their earnings. Um, they 
as part of that, it was a really great quarter. They were profitable. One of the sub points in their profitability is that their ad revenue is on a $650 million run rate uh, versus 400 last year. Um, so you could do the math, roughly a little less than 50% growth. You have to imagine that's really driving a lot of the profitability because it's very high margin. There's no drivers to pay. Um, it looks like a real monster over there. I think it's going to be enormous. I mean, it's, it wasn't that long ago when we got our first report out of Amazon and when Brian, the CFO, was like, oh, yeah, and we have this other business advertising that's starting to like get going. Yeah, I, I think we'll probably see it hockey sticking, you know, because there's so much data available. And now that sort of the pipes of retail media are getting pretty well known and the brands understand it and they have the location piece, you're already seeing it. I mean, I see it in all my orders now, like it's already popping up. So I, I think, you know, I don't think we're more than a couple of years away from it turning a five billion, five to 10 billion run rate business in what, you know, four years, five years, six years. And it's sort of self-perpetuating because they could use the, they could use it to subsidize user acquisition and all other kinds of things. Totally. And it, as you say, it's all margin, it all drops to the bottom line. I mean, now that we've seen that Amazon, their advertising business is now more profitable than AWS, that was, I mean, if somebody had, if, if an analyst had written that three years ago, they'd have been laughed out. Yeah. Yeah. The Uber thing is fascinating. Um, so they, they've said for a while now that, that you know, they expect a billion dollar run rate in 2024. I mean, basically they, they just execute and, and they're there in 2024. And then Dave, to your point, they keep growing um, and they could potentially even grow at an accelerated rate for you know, one, one reason. They can get there easily in, in, in four years. Two things that I thought were interesting also about Uber's. So it's, you know, more of a Google or Facebook-like business. I mean, advertising customers, to be clear. So it's like more of a Google or Facebook-like business, which um, are the largest digital ad businesses because they're figuring out a way to just onboard all of the SMBs to the platform as clients. So that can, as we've seen with all things digital ads, can, can drive a lot of growth. On the other side, just a couple of months ago, they added video. So they're targeting CPGs and others, the brand advertisers, like you just mentioned, with um, with, with video ads again, because you've got bad term, you've got a captive audience in the back of an Uber that's just like you know sitting there looking at the app, waiting waiting for progress. So you could imagine that they've got a bit of a barbell opportunity to drive revenue from two of the most attractive segments, right? Like SMBs, kind of very performance oriented, and then and then video audience extension onto everybody else's video with that data once you have some scale. I got the sense from talking to Mark that the real driver, though, is the shopping, uh, which is Uber Eats, the ability of restaurants to advertise Uber Eats and uh, and uh, CPG companies to advertise during, uh, you know, shopping experiences. I think that was driving a lot, uh, whereas in-car, I think, is a work in progress. That's at least the sense I got on some of the stuff. I mean, it's very new. I think they're only in two U.S. markets right now yeah. but, uh, with a small number, but you can imagine... As cars, and I just look at that, I look at that part on the longer trajectory, which is cars will become increasingly self-driving and, and, and less attention-driven. And that attention is almost certainly going to go to communications and entertainment. And as the bandwidth gets better and the attention is less needed, we're going to watch and do more things, and that will include advertising. And it also can drive yeah. acquisitions. I mean, they, they acquired Drizzly uh, last year. I forget the exact purchase price. Uh, which is a liquor delivery service, 
And you think about liquor marketers and the incredible lack of data they have mm-hmm. um, because, you know, no one signs in at your liquor store or signs in at a, at a liquor, you know, uh, website. And suddenly they have they could have ads in Drizzly and it's an opportunity to both collect data and to advertise directly to consumers in an area where they're age gated and that's very appropriate for that kind of advertising. It's like maybe the first opportunity for direct response in, in that business in a long time. Yeah, very good point. Uh, the big news of the week, Double Verify bought Cybids for $125 million, a mixture of cash and stock. This is a multifaceted story. There's a bunch of news here. Uh, well, first of all, congratulations to the Cybids team. I've known them for over 10 years. They've been working. They started out as sort of a yield optimization solution on top of AppNexus, and they've expanded. They've raised money. They've done really well. So all props to them. Secondly. Well, there's two two facets I want to talk about. First, is M and A back, and second, is this a conflict of interest? So, Dave, you you're on the record. It's a conflict of interest. Let's start there. Why should we be concerned about Double Verify buying an optimization company? Well, I'm happy for them. I think what they do is really valuable, but I think I'm very frustrated by the fact that companies that want to be in measurement and, and verification don't really want to be in measurement and verification. They want to use those as ways to grab a whole bunch of data that companies have to give them to be measured, ostensibly be measured by an independent third party to fuel targeting and optimization businesses and activation businesses with as much better margin. Simple. You know, it's no different than IAS buying public gun. And I think that I'm not saying it's not a smart financial decision. I think that I'm, I'm very happy for that team. I think what they're doing is really smart. I think that's part of where the future is going. But it's absolutely a conflict of interest. And the, the thing is, particularly in light of the fact that we've had so many recent exposures about the problems in the system where verification is not working, how the close, whether you think the numbers are inflated or not, between the ANA study on supply chain leakage to made-for-advertising sites where they weren't actually like having people's attention on them or you look at the analytics research that was reported in the Wall Street Journal, where they they claimed that 80% of the Google Video partner deliveries off of the for the automated delivery to the on third parties was actually was out of compliance and was you know sound off and viewing off and those were all things that we expected and you would think that third party verification would get certainly. Tags were running from those companies on many of those deliveries. All of us here talking know it's really hard to actually be really good at that and catch a lot of those things if someone sets them up right. But my point is, I'd like to see that problem solved. But in fact, when these companies are taking cuts and sharing revenue at the DSP level and the SSP level and the agency level, I mean, Share transactions in each place. It's the only way you get distribution and the deals happen. And then now actually going into the activation, it's like, come on, like, let's stop the fiction. I don't care. I'm not passionate about this issue. You can tell. But let's and pretend that there's anyone that's independent. They're all taking it's basically, let's just, you know, share the money around and let's all be happy. And let's actually not worry where the advertiser got good value and the publisher got the money due them. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Um, I, I, want, I want to hear Eric's point of view, but I'll just chime in first, which is 
you can't optimize and measure and be considered a uh, even hand on the measurement side. And I think that when we had Mark Sigorski on uh, Mark Architecture TV, which you should listen to, he said, I think, maybe wrong, I think he said 80% of his revenue is targeting data, only 20% is measurement. So already there's a bit of an, a conflict there in that they're charging agencies or advertisers for data that will presumably make the measurement look better because they're tied together. And, you know, at Nielsen, for example, when I built DAR, um, there was an explicit prohibition against selling data that would optimize DAR. 100%. We have part of our business called Player One, where we deliver full screen TV ads permissioned into AAA video games. We will not use one of those tags where they're going to harvest the data because I have a path through the Xbox and PlayStation or Switch. And I don't want them reselling that to other people in other environments without that value going to the publisher. And I'm prohibited from it. And so, yeah, it's, I, and when you're Eric's point of view, but yeah, I just, I just totally reinforces my, you know, concerns. Eric, do you want to jump in on the conflict question or you want to talk about M&A being back? We're back, baby. <laughs> I mean, on the, on, on the conflict, uh, I don't think anything that you guys are saying um, is, is wrong. But if it's known, maybe a bit of a contrarian question, not a contrarian statement. If it's known that 75% of their business is targeting and their business continues to grow in this you know, quarterly uh, earn, earnings report, business is up 22% year over year, I don't think the market necessarily cares. Um, and I think that they're seeing good results from the targeting business. And you know, if they're investing more into the targeting business, it's probably the right business move for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say something wrong, but right business, but I guarantee you that the companies that are having their data harvested, it's not known. It's known by the insiders. It's known to inside baseball. It's not known to the CMOs and the heads of media and their shareholders. And I think that's, that's a problem. And it, 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 my frustration is that they play the fiction, which is, yeah, like just say, hey, we're going into this other business. I mean, I remember when DoubleClick launched the research business way back and, you know, the Doug Knopper was, was, was driving and that was already understood to be careful and think about what data could be used or not. And it was an issue. I remember when ad.com was known to start using data from one advertiser's campaign to sell it for another one. And we were like, what the F? And we used that, we used that as part of our competitive sale, although we, we were staying higher on the brand side and less on the performance side. But so what you're saying here is I agree. They use measurement as a market entry strategy to harvest a bunch of data to build a business that is something else. And I just wish that, you know, we unfortunately don't have any kind of independent, robust trade press in the marketplace that covers these things anymore because everything's, everything's pay to play. Well, I mean, Ad Exchanger does its best to. to I, I think they fight hard. They do. But, but that's not being read by the CMOs and the heads of right. media or their shareholders. It's, it's our insider group. So we insiders know, but we don't have the kinds of platforms that used to exist years ago that would just crucify these companies and put them on stage and say, how can you be doing this and you know, make a point of it? Given the growth chart that uh, Ari shared with me earlier this week about the Markitecture podcast, that you, you might be listening to the one. Where, it? Yeah. I'm excited because 
you know how things are working and we need to get these things exposed. Well, Eric, I don't know if you looked at the schedule, but we have uh, Lisa Schneider coming on the show in a couple of weeks. I know. So if she hears this, maybe she'll bow out. <laughs> I mean, no, she won't because she's no, she's the toughest. She is tough. I'm scared. I'm scared of her asking me questions in the entire industry. I mean, that's the funny thing. I mean, I've known Mark and Lisa for you know double decades, probably, and um, and they're some of the best executives there, and they're doing the things they need to do for their business. And I just don't like that our industry is structured in such a way that it doesn't try to it doesn't. Yeah. Separation of those things. Look, if you get me started talking about how useless viewability is, you'll you'll I'll never stop. We'll run out of time on this podcast. All right, last last topic I want to talk about, which is just you know, uh, one of my hobbies is tracking the name changes in ad tech. Every every ad tech company changes its name at least once, except for Simple Media. Like, it, um, but pretty much every other company has changed its name multiple times. Uh, speaking of which, I think on Architecture TV next week, we have Nexum on, which used to be called Tremor, which used to be called something else. They they might have the record for the most name changes. Well, they, um, they have the record for the most number of names under the umbrella because it's Tremor. Yes, exactly. It's, it's Unruly. It's Amobi. It's a whole list of companies that they've, you know, ro- rolled up over Rhythm the Rhythm One. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Remember, it had a couple um, of Tremor names. It was Tremor Video. Then it was Tremor Media. Yes, dry tremor. Solar- and tremor turned into Solaria. Anyway, that's not the, what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is Xander, um, formerly known as AppNexus, um, which is changing its name under its new owner of Microsoft. So background here is that the Xander name, spelled X-A-N-D-R, was a a homage to Alexander Graham Bell, Graham Bell, the uh, founder of AT&T, and I believe it, the name was actually come up with by our friend, friend of the pod. Um, I will put it in the show notes. Anyway, that's another important point. Important point is Microsoft doesn't ha- want to have a company named after AT and T. So now, Promote IQ, which Microsoft also owns, is now named Microsoft Retail Media. Xander is now Microsoft Monetize, and they had previously had Monetize as a product name for the sell side of Xander, and. Invest is now Microsoft Invest. So Monetize and Invest were the two products from Xander. Now they're Microsoft uh, Invest and Microsoft Monetize. Is this a good name change, bad name change? I think it's bad, but I thought Xander was horrible. So, I mean, I mean, because the point was anyone that cared was calling it at Nexus because that name meant so much and had so much power. And that changed the change. Xander was just ridiculous. And they put so much behind it rather than sort of building out the video product and the CTV product that probably would have been a little bit better invested time and energy. Like, I don't, I mean, you actually respond, you know, we had an exchange on what X, I guess not Twitter, was, we had an exchange on Twitter, but now we have an exchange on X on this. I didn't think it was crazy if Elon wants to change his thing to X because, hey, first he owns it, he can do whatever he wants with it. But he had his company, X.com. I think it was X.com, it was X. Like when he sold after he exited the Zip2 sale, right. that's one that his investors, like he had to blow up with the investors and they threw him out, but he did the Br'er Rabbit thing. And he's like, oh no, just, but let me just take this thing I bought that you don't like called PayPal and you take the money and I'll take this. So we um, try to have a sign around this podcast, like zero weeks uh, have gone by without discussing Elon Musk. Um, sorry, so, but that's my thing with the ad tech. You like about his ad tech days. I don't know what he does now. I mean, what he does now, what I know about from the old days when we were on panels and stuff. But so I think, yeah, I think some of the name changes are ridiculous. 
I mean, if you're actually changing your product or your offering or your solution and it's necessary, but I think that to buyers like the app next, if I'd have done anything, I'd have named it, turned it back. Add to app nexus. The, uh, I think, um, by the way, the guy who came up with Xander is Jason Kelly. Uh, I also have a hard time remembering his name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple points. One is it's interesting that they're naming buy side and sell side as different products because one of the biggest advantages of that stack is the ability to do both. So I, I wonder if there's some reading of the tea leaves that that's not really the future of the company, that they're going to sell it as a DSP and an SSP and you know who knows what will happen to it. And the second point is I think there is a lot of brand equity in AppNexus. Also, there was always this discussion at AppNexus that they should change the name of the company to AdNexus, which was a domain they also owned, um, which would have been more appropriate, but they just never did anything about it. Yeah. I think so. When I was at AOL and sort of right before leaving, my strategy was what I was hoping to do, but it got derailed over a social media platform they bought, but was we were trying to break the business into three parts, the dial-up, the content business, and we had a buyer for the content businesses, like all the MapQuest and the, in the email and everything. And then we were going to put the advertising business as a package. We put this rename on it called Platform A, but... The idea was to rebrand it back to ad.com, and that would have been ad.com, Dakota, Quigo, uh, the third third screen, and we also had the was the, the video business that um, was it Tom McIsaac ran. And so we were going to spin those out as ad.com, and I was promoting that. I'm like, look, I love the Dakota name, but it like it has this much. Ad.com really carries a lot. And to make that a separate independent public company, which... But then they bought um, that thing. Bebo, right? What Bebo? <laughs> yeah. The best thing is my only big company time in my history, I wrote the memo to say, this thing is not worth this, it's not worth this. This is, you don't need, here's the tech. Yeah. And I love that, they, you know, and I quit because they, they authorized it. They got the board to authorize a billion dollars for it. And I, the fact that it was sold two years later for $5 million, they spent eight thirty five, and it was- sold. It was basically- it was it was kind of a brilliant idea. It was a it was like a dating site with a PPC model. So you could basically buy credits that raised your face in people's social feed, which inevitably was used for, you know, sex work and things like that. Uh, Eric, you have one last point and then we got to go. So Bebo was uh, bought back by the founder, I think for yeah. a million or a million yeah. and then they they actually sold it to Twitch. Yes. For some yes. for like a reported tw- 25 of history. On this naming thing, just a quick thing. Number one, this was the most Ari Paparo segment ever. The obsession, just like <laughs> ad tech company names. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Uh, number two, I was so thankful they changed the name to Xander because I, in every email, always misspelled it. And then number three, yeah, calling it Microsoft whatever is super important because Microsoft needs to grow its brand as an advertising seller in the marketplace. So I'm in favor of the whole thing. All right, well said. This was an awesome conversation. We covered a lot of ground in this talk. Uh, Eric, always great to have you. And David, thanks thanks for being here. This was an amazing conversation. Welcome. Thanks for having me and uh, a lot of fun. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.